Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What occurred to me is that according to Deb, she went to her parents' house that morning to pick up the receipt for the trees and concert tickets. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Today's episode is going to be a bit of a hodgepodge. This week, I made a trip to Fort Worth in an attempt to answer some questions that we've all had about the case. The trip most certainly didn't solve the murders for us, but it did provide some clarity and somehow managed to add a few more questions to the list. But before I get into the details of my trip to Texas, I want you to hear an interview that I recorded with a highly respected medical examiner. Dr. Cyril Wecht was sent the Courtney's autopsies as well as the crime scene video and other case materials about two weeks ago. He reviewed the files and agreed to get on the phone with me to discuss his analysis. My conversation with Dr. Wecht will be the first segment of today's episode. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dr. Wecht is a very busy man. I was warned before this interview that he's not one for small talk. I was told to ask my questions, let him answer, then let him get back to work, which is exactly what I did. Here's my conversation with Dr. Cyril Wecht. Hello. Hi, Dr. Wecht. This is Bob Ruff. Thank you so much for, for taking time out of your, I'm sure, very busy schedule to chat with me. Yes, I have looked through the materials, and um, please... uh Go ahead and ask me whatever you, you want to. Okay, can, can we start off real quick first and have you give us a little bit of your background in education and, and forensics? I am a uh, forensic pathologist. I have been uh, practicing as a forensic pathologist uh, since 1962. I have performed approximately 21,000 autopsies uh, and reviewed about uh, 40,000 uh, others. I am an active medical legal consultant. They're reviewing civil and criminal cases for attorneys uh, from all over the country and occasionally from foreign countries. I perform uh, autopsies uh, for four corners, district attorneys in surrounding counties here in southwestern Pennsylvania. I was the Allegheny County uh, Pittsburgh coroner for 20 years at two separate 10-year periods. Uh, so that, uh, and I also have a law degree. So that. Um, is uh, a summary of uh, my background. Okay. Now, in in this specific case, Dr. Ambers told me that she had had some preliminary discussion with you. 
And I know that it seems that we're not going to be able to get a lot of information regarding time of death in this particular case due to the documentation. So could you speak to what, in your opinion, is is maybe missing from these autopsies or from this case file that should be there that that should have been done in order for us to accurately or at least semi-accurately determine time of death? The um, best way to come up with a uh, as close an approximation regarding time of death is to examine the body at the scene when the body is found and you look for uh, signs of rigor mortis, body stiffening, liver mortis, the postmortem gravitational settling of blood in the dependent portions of the body, uh, depending upon how the body is uh, situated at the time of death. And uh, most uh, scientifically important, uh, algor mortis, body temperature, and that is done with a thermometer in the rectum or inserted into the liver. So when you don't do that, uh, then when you see a body uh, hours later and after it has been refrigerated and handled, uh, moved, and so on, then uh, these criteria, which are not precise to begin with, uh, lose uh, a continuing degree of scientific validity as the time goes by. Right. And in this case, either none of that was done or if it was done, it wasn't documented. So we're all, all of us that are reviewing this case are have sort of conceded to the fact that we're probably not going to get a, a terribly accurate time of death. One thing that I noted uh, and some of our listeners had caught was uh, the liver mortis in the body. And it was not examined at the scene, but I guess my my question to you is, what we know is that, at, and you've seen the crime scene video, that you know Agnes's, the, the, the female victim's final resting place, was in a prone position on the, on the floor. The first arriving officer found her in that position. We have the crime scene video uh, where we have time, time stamps as late as midnight where she's still laying in that position, and then the reports indicate that she wasn't moved till some time after that. In the autopsy, Agnes's body is noted as having posterior lividity. So based on my very limited understanding of how lividity works, that to me possibly narrowed a window down of when the time of death could be, only because what we, what we know is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when we see her body still laying face down at midnight, and when the autopsy's done the next day or the day after, the lividity is fixed on her back, that would indicate to me that the body had not had time for lividity to fix by midnight that night. Is that accurate, or could it, is there a shifting well, that's when possible? You say, when is this death known to have occurred, or believed, or alleged to have occurred? It's uh, alleged to have occurred somewhere between 10 a.m. and noon, and the time of death becomes important because of uh, an alibi of one of the particular suspects. Right, between between 10 a.m. and noon, and the body is found at midnight, uh, some 12 or 14 hours later. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, the body was found at 5:30 p.m., but in the but we can see in the crime scene videos that the body had not yet been moved by midnight. Well. Um, yeah, uh, when it was found is not relevant then that the body wasn't moved. The answer to uh, your question is this. Uh, Levor mortis, the gravitational settling of blood into the dependent parts of the body, 
that are not under uh, mark pressure uh, begins in 20 to 30 minutes uh, after death. And then it takes about six to 10 hours uh, to become fixed. If a body then is subsequently moved, that pattern of levor mortis will not be completely gone uh, because it will have fixed certainly within 12 to 14 hours under somebody's scenario. If the body is then placed in another position, then a second uh, pattern of levor mortis can develop. So um, the fact that levor mortis is noted here only in the posterior dependent portions of the body and none noted on the anterior aspects of the body, uh, the face, uh, portions of the thorax, abdomen, uh, and so on, uh, would indicate, yes, that the body had most likely been moved uh, sometime before uh, the levor mortis pattern had set in. It's not uh, really a terribly close call if you're talking about uh, 12 to 14 hours from 10 a.m., 12 noon, up to around 12 o'clock when the body is turned over, that nobody bothered to look from 5.30 when the body was found until midnight uh, is uh, very puzzling. It was negligent on the part of homicide investigators, forensic scientific investigators, the representatives from the uh, coroner or medical examiner's office. That certainly should have been done. Yeah, I agree. I found it strange when in the video that her body was still clothed all the way up until midnight, that they hadn't even done any sort of body examination by that time. Regarding the lividity, is there an outside end to where, when it could fix? So, I, so if we, what I'm trying to figure out is, is there a time we could, we could mark, say, it, and it actually seems like it's one in the morning before her body is moved. Is there a time that we could say, well, she couldn't have died before this time because lividity surely would have fixed by 1 a.m.? Yeah, the, the, the outside, the, the, the textbooks on forensic pathology vary somewhat. And they do point out, by the way, that there can be variations uh, from case to case. Uh, um, it's not uh, 100%, but uh, overwhelmingly, the answer is that uh, levor mortis, which, as I've said, begins to develop uh, within uh, a half an hour, does become fixed between 6 to uh, 10 hours. So if you go back from 1 o'clock in the morning, 1 a.m., when the body was moved, then uh, you go back, uh, taking the outside range of 10 hours, that takes you back to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It certainly doesn't take you back uh, to uh, that uh, two-hour interval between 10 a.m. and 12 noon. Do you think that it's possible that it could be 1 p.m. You know, is it with a 12-hour window? Well, that's stretching. Uh, um, that's really stretching it uh, to uh, 1 p.m. You know, that could be the uh, the outermost range. Uh, you know, I don't think somebody could say that it would be impossible for it to not to, to have been completely fixed within 12 hours and that it would have dissipated uh, once the body was moved. Uh, that's that's really stretching it. Okay, and that's that seems to be consistent with you know my only I have no medical background other than reading 
Dr. Spitz's books on the subject. And it seems to be with your your vast knowledge of thousands and thousands of cases that his book seems to be accurate, I guess I would say. Yes. If you read, yes, Spitz Fisher, uh, Gradwall, um, Knight, uh, the Mayo, uh, my own textbook on forensic pathology and so on, uh, you'll find these ranges. And again, they're not precise, but uh, to um, go 12 hours or more and uh, not have a Levor mortis pattern fixed uh, uh, would be really, really stretching it. If she had been on her uh, abdomen uh, in a prone position uh, for 12 to 14 hours, I do not believe it would have been possible for there not to have been some pattern, whether it would have faded somewhat or not, but some pattern of lividity on the dependent parts of her body anteriorly, somebody lying uh, face down. So uh, that is too bad if it was not brought up in this case, uh, which I, I realize after reading materials uh, was highly controversial and does not appear to have been handled uh, competently uh, at the trial. Her uh, better attorneys, uh, for one reason or another, uh, were no longer involved. Uh, that's that's too bad. Uh, how far anybody could get with this now to obtain a post-conviction hearing is something that an experienced attorney would have to determine. Right, and, and you know, there's a, there's a lot more to it, but but believe it or not, even as vague as this still is, uh, your input is helpful because you know there's a there's a huge difference for my investigation. If we're talking about a 10 a.m. death or a 1 p.m. death, even though that's not a huge window of time, it's a it's a very yeah. crit- critical window of time. Yeah. Well, uh, that's that's a, it's a good. It's not that tight, you know. It's not uh, you know picking straws. So uh, I, I hope that um, your observation, confirmed uh, by uh, my experience and uh, corroborated in textbook and so on, that uh, this will possibly help in attempting to seek justice for uh, this uh, this individual. That's great. And and uh, Dr. Wecht, I know you're very busy, so I'm going to go ahead and, and let you go. Unless there was anything that you noted in the autopsy that you think that is worth addressing, anything that was incorrect. No, no, no. I think the injuries and everything are, are clearly set forth, and uh, I have no problem understanding cause of death. So I don't think there's anything of a... Uh, Disputable nature, uh, so far as the cause and manner of death are concerned. Well, perfect. Then I will let you get back to work, sir, and thank you very much for your time. All right. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Based on Dr. Wett's expert opinion, along with all of the other evidence that we've discussed previously, I'm now very comfortable saying that our best estimate for time of death for Agnes is approximately 1 p.m which presents a big problem with the state's theory, considering the fact that it is undisputed that Deborah had left her house prior to noon. As I mentioned in this week's follow-up, it's even noted in the state's timeline exhibit from trial. They note that Deb is gone by noon. Lucky 
Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's circle back to the note for just a moment. There are two things that I want to discuss. The first being the font. On Tuesday morning, Allison Clayton and I visited the Tarrant County Clerk's Office to review the trial exhibits and evidence. This turned out to be kind of a clumsy process. Tarrant County has a policy that no one other than county employees are allowed to touch any of the evidence without a court order. I've come across this issue before, but only with the physical evidence. In this case, the policy prevented us from even handling pictures or documents. We were also not allowed to take any pictures or obtain any copies of anything. This problem was later remedied. IPTX quickly filed a motion, it was approved by a judge, and Allison returned to the office after I left to take photos. I don't have copies yet, but I should have them soon. As the clerk was setting out documents in front of us, we came to the note that was found in Lloyd's pant leg. I've seen photos of the note and scans of the note, but seeing the actual note revealed something that wasn't obvious in the scan files. We've already discussed in depth the difference between this note and the letter that Agnes had printed visible in the crime scene video. Essentially, we were able to determine that the note that Agnes printed was typed using an aerial font whereas the note found on Lloyd was typed using Times New Roman. This, of course, led to many discussions about what that could mean. Was Agnes typing with the default font, indicating that if the murder note was typed on the Courtney's computer, then the killer would have manually changed the font? Or did Agnes change the font for her letter, and the default was Times New Roman, which would mean that if the killer typed the note at the Courtney's house, then they wouldn't have to change anything? A whole bunch of listeners dug into the issue, and the general consensus seems to be that in 2001, the factory default in Word was Times New Roman, the same font as the murder note. Now That really doesn't help us a whole lot, because if Times New Roman was the default setting in every Word program, then that means we would likely see the same font no matter where the note was printed. And if we were to find that Agnes had changed the default, then we're right back to the killer changing the template before writing the murder note. All done in a four-minute span, an hour before Agnes got home. Looking at the actual note revealed immediately another discrepancy. Allison and I both spoke the same words the second the clerk placed the note on the table. That font is tiny. Maybe some of you noticed this before, but I certainly hadn't. The factory default font for Microsoft Word in 2001 was Times New Roman in an 11-point font. The murder note was clearly typed with a much smaller font. My guess while in the office was that it was an 8 or 9-point. But after returning home, I spent the better part of an afternoon measuring, scaling, and experimenting with fonts. 
After all of that, I've come to the conclusion that the murder note was typed using a 10-point Times New Roman font. Which for those of you that do any amount of writing, you know that it's pretty damn small. So, here's the deal. It seems very unlikely that Agnes or Lloyd, in their 70s, both wearing glasses, would change the default setting in Word to a 10-point font, even smaller than the factory setting of 11-point. Add to that the fact that we have an example of Agnes's work on the computer, and it's not only not typed in Times New Roman, but it's also not typed in 10-point. And I think it's a fair assessment to say that the default font on the Courtney's computer was not Times New Roman in 10-point. And this is where all of this leaves us, in my opinion. So we can't rule out the fact that Deb typed the murder note on the Courtney's computer at 10 a.m. But if she did, then she would have had to have turned the computer on, created a new Word document, at the very least changed the font to 10-point and possibly changed from a default that Agnes had previously set, then typed the note and printed it with Lloyd in the other room. Again, we can't say that that's impossible. It could have happened. But it sure does seem improbable at this point. I had lunch on Tuesday with both Allison and Mike Ware, the executive director of the Innocence Project of Texas. At that meeting, I informed both of them that my recommendation is to request that the DA allow further forensic testing on the Courtney's computer. Like I said last week, if it can be proven that the note was in fact typed on Agnes and Lloyd's computer, then there's really no way around it. Deb is guilty. Hopefully that testing happens and we get to the bottom of this. I also mentioned in this week's follow-up that I have a theory about the document that was printed on the morning of the murders. Now, I'm not computer savvy enough to know if this is even possible based on the forensic reports, but this is my thought. In the original computer forensic report that I posted a couple weeks ago, there's a page that lists documents of interest. Listed in those documents was one titled Brenda Concert Tickets from October 17th, about two weeks before the murders. What occurred to me is that according to Deb, she went to her parents' house that morning to pick up the receipt for the trees and concert tickets. So this is what I'm thinking, and I'm counting on my computer experts to tell me if this is possible. Based on the Brenda concert tickets file, it seems that the tickets may be homemade documents typed and printed from a computer. Since Deb was there to get her tickets, I'm wondering if Lloyd may have printed them out for her. But here's where I don't understand if that's possible. It seems unlikely that the tickets were just words on a piece of paper. I would think that they would be some kind of design. I'm guessing that based on the forensic report, that the Brenda Tickets document wasn't opened and edited. But is it possible that there was a master file on the floppy disk that was opened? Or could something have been cut and pasted into the Word document? It makes sense to me that Lloyd would have printed the tickets for Deb, but I can't make sense of how he could have done that when we factor in the forensic report that says that a new document was created and nothing was accessed other than that. So that's the homework for you computer geniuses. Let me know between now and Wednesday if my theory is possible, assuming that the ticket wasn't just a piece of paper that said Deb concert tickets. And we'll discuss this further in this week's follow-up. While we're talking about the computer, let's discuss for a moment the caller ID box that was located on the desk right next to it. In Friday's follow-up, a question came up about the caller ID box cords that were cut. In my sleepiness, I hypothesized that really the cords must have been cut before the murders since the killer would have had to move past Agnes on the bed in order to get to them. 
And of course, there's really no reason to cut the cords after the murders. But since then, I've been doing some more thinking on the subject, and I'm not so sure I was right about that. And here's why. While I was at the clerk's office this week, I got to see a few pictures that we haven't seen before. Hopefully, I'll have copies of those to share with you soon. One of the pictures is a shot looking down at the desk in the bedroom. In that picture, we see there is both a caller ID box that has fallen between the desk and the piece of furniture next to it, and a phone. There are two cords coming out of the box, and both are cut within a half inch of the box itself. For those of you who don't know how the old ID boxes worked, you had a cord that went from the wall jack into the box, and then another cord from the box into the phone. The phone was an old-style desktop type, with a relatively large squarish base with the number buttons on it, and a handset that sat on top of it, connected with a curly cord. The other piece of this puzzle is the computer itself. It's pulled off the desk, and that's what got me thinking about my earlier thoughts on the ID box. Let me try to break down my train of thought here. First, the cut wires. If the wires were cut before the murders, I'm asking myself, why? What I mean by that is, if the goal was to make sure that your future victim won't be able to call 911, why not just unplug the cords? It would be far easier to just pop the cords out of the back of the box than it would be to cut through them. Secondly, why just that phone? The blood spatter pattern on the wall near the phone in the dining room indicates that that phone cord was cut during the attack. And then thirdly, there's the computer. It was pulled down off the desk. I think that we can all agree that that was not done before the murders. In fact, we know it wasn't because it was found unplugged, and we know that it was manually shut down at 11.19. So, how did the computer get knocked over? I can't make sense of the killer yanking it off the desk after the murders. So, this is what I think is a far more likely scenario. Sometime during the attack, Agnes went for the phone on the desk. She grabs the phone base and receiver, which would take the caller ID box with them because they're connected by the cord. Rather than trying to wrestle the phone out of Agnes's hands, the killer grabs the box, which would be between them and Agnes, and quickly cuts the cords. And the computer is knocked over during the struggle. This is the scenario that makes the most sense to me, but that poses some more questions about our crime scene. I'm still absolutely 100% convinced that Agnes laid down for a nap. But I think that it's entirely possible that she woke up during the attack on Lloyd. Or at least that she jumped out of bed at the very beginning of her attack. I think that Agnes started out on the bed. She was either on the bed or fell onto the bed when she was beat over the head. But I don't necessarily think that she was there between those two events. I think it could go either way. I think it's possible that she was caught off guard during her nap, was stabbed and hit while in the bed, then got up and went for the phone. Or... She could have woke up when her attacker entered the room, went for the phone, and the attack started there. That's an alternate explanation for the stab in the back. Maybe she turned her back to the killer while she tried to call the police. She's hit over the head and falls back onto the bed. Or, lastly, Agnes could have heard the commotion in the front room, went out to find Lloyd being attacked, and retreated back to the bedroom to get to the phone. Then, the same scenario that I just mentioned. She's beaten and falls back onto the bed. I think that any of these three scenarios are equally likely. And I also still believe that Agnes begins her movements from the bed where she was napping. With 
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before I close things out for this week, I want to touch on a few things that came up during the follow-up and clear up something that's been baffling all of us since the beginning of the season. I'll start with the baffling part. We've all been racking our brains for months trying to figure out how the cast iron skillet shattered over the heads of the Courtney's, but didn't break any of their bones. In the clerk's office, Allison and I got to see the actual pieces of the skillet. They were wrapped up in plastic and we weren't allowed to touch them, but the clerk working with us was. When he pulled the first and largest piece of the skillet out of the box, the first thing he said was, wow, that's some flimsy cast iron. As I said, we weren't allowed to touch the pans, but we could look at them. They were very thin compared to my wife's skillets. By my visual assessment, I would say that they were no more than an eighth of an inch thick. The gentleman that was helping us told me that he's actually an antique collector and has a lot of cast iron skillets in his collection. He said that these skillets were cheap and thin and that he's not surprised that they shattered. So, for what it's worth, Agnes had herself some flimsy pans, and that's why they broke. And now on to a question that was asked in this week's follow-up. I've mentioned before that I had heard that Lloyd had been threatened because of work that he had done in criminal cases. Several listeners asked for more information on that, and I now have some of those answers for you. Like I said in the follow-up, I found more handwritten notes in the police file. I found notes from a Detective Ortega and Hardy's notes from the day of the murders through the 7th of November. Both are now posted on our website. In Ortega's notes, we read a little bit about the threats made to Lloyd. In the note, Ortega states that he spoke with a woman named Kathy Lamans, a close friend of Agnes. This is what the report says. About six to eight weeks before the murder, Mrs. Lamans and Agnes went out and had dinner at 8.0's restaurant in downtown Fort Worth. Mrs. Lamans recalled that during a conversation, Agnes had commented that the police had their house under surveillance due to them receiving threats made to Smitty because of his work and affiliation with the police department. Ortega also spoke to another close friend of Agnes's, a woman named Maxine Love. Maxine provides a little more detail regarding the threats and also gives us a little bit of insight to Agnes's relationship with both Deb and her sister Brenda. From the report. Detective Ortega met with Maxine Love at her residence. Mrs. Love acknowledged that Agnes was a very close and dear friend of hers. Mrs. Love was still very visibly distraught over the death of her close friend. Love informed the Courtney's had an adopted daughter named Brenda who had been living with a man the Courtney's did not approve of. Also, their granddaughter apparently was not going in the direction the Courtney's felt she should be. Nonetheless, the Courtney's continued supporting them, i.e. paying their bills, rent, school, etc. Mrs. Love informed that Agnes often commented about ongoing discussions her and Lloyd would have with Brenda about her and Sarah's lifestyle. Agnes told Mrs. Love that Brenda was not coming over to visit them as she used to, and that Brenda was a workaholic. Consequently, things were tense between them as a result. Mrs. Love commented that she sometimes thought that Agnes wondered if it was the right decision to have adopted her, meaning Brenda. Maxine Love was also with Kathy Lamans and Agnes at the dinner date they had in late August or September. Mrs. Love recalled that Agnes had said something about her and Lloyd having received threatening phone calls, but that the police were taking care of it. 
Mrs. Love remembered Agnes saying something to the effect of, the police are watching our house and they have it under surveillance. Mrs. Love said that Agnes did not reveal any details. However, Agnes appeared to still be concerned. Mrs. Love said, quote, Agnes always worried about Debbie, her problems, and her redacted. The last time Mrs. Love spoke with Agnes was approximately 10 days prior to her death, and Agnes sounded fine. Based on these witness accounts, I think that it's fair to say that we cannot rule out the fact that the Courtney's murders could have been revenge from an ex-con. I'm still not sure that I would consider that a probable theory, but it has to be a possible theory since Lloyd was in fact being threatened and threatened enough to justify putting his house under surveillance. We definitely have a lot more ground to cover, and I have more to report on from my trip to Texas. But given what's turned into a two-day work week for me because of travels, I think we're going to stop right here for today. I think I've given you all enough to talk about for a few days. So thanks for listening. I hope that you found Dr. Wett's interview informative along with all the other material covered in this episode. More to come next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Merb Gaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. 
However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.